Hi all, you're listening to PR Hangover, a bi-weekly public relations podcast and talk show brought to you by Grand Valley State University's PRSSA chapter and hosted by me, Hunter Buren. Now you can sit back, get a cup of coffee, relax, and enjoy the show. Thanks! Alright, so we're going to start out the podcast. You can introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, so my name is Jonathan Forma. Uh, I'm a Michigan native. Um, I grew up in Garden City, Michigan. Uh, went to Central Michigan University for my undergrad. Uh, went into a PhD program at Michigan State University and you know, thought that I was going to be doing research in China, uh, health research specifically. Had a couple of scholarships to come over, learn the language, and was planning on using that to, to conduct my research later. Mm-hmm. Um, and realized that while I was in China, it was a very, very cool place. And, you know, as you heard, I'm from Michigan, so you don't see many skyscrapers. And so when you come to a city of 23, 24 million people, and every building is like, you know, the, the smallest building around you is maybe 30, <laughs> 35 stories. Yeah. Uh, it ends up being an exciting place. And so after I arrived um, here and decided I wanted to, to work here and so discontinue my PhD program, um, I started, uh, started working um, first like in software development and then uh, now into uh, like CRM and marketing analytics. Okay. And so in college, you studied um, sociology, right? Yeah, I was actually a dual major, sociology and psychology. So how do you think that um, studying that in college really prepared you for more the marketing world than the advertising world. Um, so, so I should add, uh, I should add first that it, you know when, although when you study sociology or psychology or you do survey research or like stats or anything like that, you consider a career in, in marketing as, as an option. Uh-huh. But it wasn't when I was studying it. That was not my first. Uh, I, I was not imagining that I would be a marketer some yeah. sometime in the future. Um, but it, it really helped. One, because uh, in sociology and psychology, there's a lot of different types of survey research. And, uh, and two, I did a lot of statistics as well. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about data and analytics and reporting, um, th- there's one part of it that's trying to understand what customers are feeling and, and those sorts of things, which, which is where the survey research uh, comes in handy. Uh-huh. And there's two, just figuring out lots of patterns are sort of undetectable. Uh, how can I use different mathematical methods to try to figure out what's actually going on? Uh, and to tell that story of, about what's going on in the data. So that it was it was helpful in a way. Uh, and it, it was also helpful because it was like an interesting subject that didn't just turn me off to doing analysis. Yeah. Because it's all about the question, right? It's like, what is, you know, what are we trying to figure out? And humans, because, uh, you know, so, sociology and psychology and humans are odd. Humans aren't don't always give clear answers as to why they do things. So it gives you that like. I almost want to say it's like a re- what a reporter would do, where you're like, well, what is the motivation behind this? What's going on? How do I tell that story? So yeah. that, that, that helped a lot. So being a Michigan native, um, Michigan's a very diverse state, but uh, Asia isn't extremely well represented in Michigan. What drew you to China specifically? <laughs> it's, 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 uh, well, it's, it's a funny story um, because I had, a, once I got to grad school, um, I decided I wanted to do research abroad. Uh-huh. So then you sort of have to pick a continent. And yeah. I was like, well, you know what? Asia seems cool. I mean, and there wasn't so much thought behind it. I mean, I was 20, yeah. 22, didn't really know exactly where I wanted to go. And I started applying for um, fellowships. Like the, the U.S. government has this thing called the Foreign Language and Area Studies Fellowship. Mm-hmm. And they usually do it by by uh, region. So you apply for like an Asian one or uh, or an African one or something like that. Uh-huh. And what they do is they help you um, – they help – 
introduce you to some courses, give you a bit of funding, and also help you learn a language. So I applied to, uh, I did this research proposal, I applied to the Asian Foreign Language and Area Studies Fellowship, that, that sort of section, and they told me, you know what, uh, we, we like that, but we want you to pick the country first. You have to choose between Korea, Japan, or China. Uh-huh. And then I was like, why? I mean, I don't know what to do. Um, I, I guess, you know, China's pretty big. That seems like it'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, so I, I did a bit of research on it and I really had not, I, I didn't, this wasn't really well thought out. I have to stress that, but, uh-huh. uh, I did my research into China and then I, uh, I decided to pick Chinese as a language, lucky enough to receive the fellowship. And that's how I started. Uh-huh. So you're currently working in analytics at GTB. Can you just describe what GTB is, what their company up? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So GTB, um, formerly uh, Blue Hive and formerly Team Detroit, if you're if you know of it in Michigan, uh, we are an integrate what's called an integrated agency. So what you might have normally is an agency that's like, okay, we do cool creative stuff, or mm-hmm. maybe you have an agency that's like, we do technology, like C- we do CRM, which is customer relationship management, or we do like servers or apps. So you might like, uh, I don't know how familiar audiences but like MRM McCann or um or you know maybe Wonderman to some extent like they're very technology focused uh-huh. whereas you might have other agencies that are very creative focused GTB does sort of all of those things we are a one-stop shop in a way for Ford so we will do the creative the strategy the reporting and analytics um, we'll work with vendors on Ford's behalf so uh-huh. it's, it's one of those things where it's like you don't Managing lots of agencies is very difficult, um, and it takes a lot of time uh, to, to do that. It's much easier to have it all in one place, and then the teams can coordinate, work together, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So that's what GTB um, is. And you are correct that I do uh, I do reporting and analytics. Previously, it was just digital for Ford, and now is um, all analytics and reporting for Lincoln, okay. which just entered China two and a half years ago, basically, okay. three years ago. And so what drew you to analytics? Because I know that a lot of people aren't very interested in the research side. They're more interested in the creative side. But can you bring creative into analytics? Is that something that you've been working on? Or is there something else that drew you to analytics? Yeah, so uh, there's, I, th- I think there's two things on that. One is um, it, it ends up it's not because you say analytics and reporting and you probably have this uh if you watch like the not the, not the big short for any sort of wall street move, uh, movie where you're looking at a computer screen you're seeing lots of lines going up and down you yeah. imagine there's some crazy analysis going on uh-huh. but really um especially for a, an agency that does marketing we're really just trying to find out what's working what's not what should what should we do more what should we stop and what should we like adjust right uh-huh. something like that um and so it ends up being much more about and if you consider how many things are happening in the world, okay, so like, yeah. like, you have to consider China's economy. You have to consider: do we have a new product in place? How much advertising did we advertising dollars did we have this week? Was there any special offer on the vehicle? So there's a lot of things coming together, and the interesting thing then is it's it becomes less about that and more about the overall narrative that you're telling for in your analysis, right? Mm-hmm. So it, I mean, when I say that it. I mean, putting all those little tiny bit, like you have some numbers here, maybe some research here, some like news article here, and then you have to tie that together to say, what is your opinion? Because we're consultants. And that's, I think, the coolest part about it is people ask us what's going on and they want an unfiltered opinion. They don't want, you know, they don't care the numbers going up or down. They're like, what is happening? What should I do about it? Please recommend something, right? Uh So that's kind of interesting, I think. That's what drew me to it. Yeah. 
So, um, going into this, I know that it can be intimidating to find out, to try and find out all of these things that people are thinking. There's a lot of different ways to find out how people are thinking. Have there been anything in your experience that has you found it easier to um, like realize how people are thinking about your product? Um, are there any specific uh, technologies that you've used that have helped you a lot through that in the beginning? Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a good example for that, actually, because as I, as I just mentioned, I used to do digital analytics for Ford, which uh -huh. is basically looking at all of their websites and user behavior. Uh -huh. um, and there was 12 of them. So we did 12 different countries in Asia. And we, uh, we used a tool called iPerceptions. It's essentially, a, you, you've seen those pop-up surveys you have on websites, right? Yeah. So a survey will pop up when you go to the website. It will ask you questions about the brand or about what you want to do, mm -hmm. et cetera. But the cool thing was, is we were actually able to, um, you know, using a new technology, uh, we were actually able to track the user's behavior and tie, I mean, it's all anonymous, but track the user's behavior and tie it back to their survey responses. Mm -hmm. And then the interesting thing is watching what people say versus what they do. Yeah. So they'll, they'll say, the reason I came to the website is I wanted to find out the price of the car. And then you, found, you find out they're watching videos for an hour and not uh -huh. they've never even looked at the price of the car something like that okay yeah so that, that was that was really cool and it gives you that and then and then you could try to figure out what's the gap why are they why do they want this but then they did this mm -hmm. so then you can try to optimize the site and do those sorts of things so with working on this um in china i know there are certain sites that are blocked here yep. and i know a lot of people in the u.s um one thing that is very helpful is Facebook analytics that's very in-depth and very helpful to find out customer information. What is something, maybe some problems you've ran into while doing analytics here or just some different ways you've approached it? No, no, I mean, di you are absolutely correct because uh, doing digital analytics here, it's very different than if we were based in Hong Kong. One is, you know, we don't use like a lot of Google ad networks or YouTube or any of those things, right? Uh -huh. They're all blocked here. So lots of things that you consider successful campaigns outside of China, like maybe in the US, if you if you have like a nice, some YouTube video campaign, or if you do stuff on Facebook, this can be considered good. And they're not even options here. Uh -huh. So you have to do very, um, and, and, and as, you, as you probably know, China's changed, it's, it changes very rapidly. I mean, yes. uh, so there's lots of things that have happened in the last five years that directly impact our job and how we market to Chinese consumers online. Uh, I mean, I would say it, it's not so much thinking of it as a barrier. It's just thinking of what can I use that's available in China. So mm -hmm. like, um, I mean, their big search engine, Baidu, which is like the Google of China, they offer a lot of data services that Google sort of does. Uh -huh. So you get like if you do keywords on Google in the US, they have an equivalent service here. If they use if you use Google Trends, which is like that search index tool in the U.S., here they have a Baidu search index trend. So like you can find somehow equivalent data sets, mm -hmm. uh, but then how do you use them? Because then you know you have to try to you have to create all new metrics of success and try to make sure you're um, you're taking into account all the different ways Chinese consumers use like digital media or use like platforms. So it, it gets difficult, but we've we've tried. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. So with the different culture here, um, there's a very different driving culture than in the U.S. There's a lot of um, expats have drivers and things of that nature. There's a lot more taxis here. Um, have you found that it's a different, you have a lot more publics or it's a different amount of publics um, that you try to find information on, like based on the U.S.? 
Oh, you mean like segments of the population yeah. sort of, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, you are correct that driving – so if, if you consider 20 years ago, uh, there wasn't – I mean – even probably in the starting in the 80s i mean I, I don't think like chinese like cars didn't really take off until after a lot of the economic reforms that happened in the 80s right uh-huh. that's when china just started its its crazy boom um and you are right that it's a very different th- there's not really a car culture like there there is in the u.s i mean i think still i can't remember the exact percent but it's a, a very sizable number of people that purchase fords or lincoln's their first time car buyers uh-huh. so their parents never drove and their grandparents never drove. Yeah. And so you, you get this – so then you have to consider, wow, you know, it's not like you're – you're not marketing to people that have already driven cars before and are looking to upgrade. These are in, – in some cities, these are people that whose families have never had a car. So how do you make sure, you know, you, you sell that experience or you sell – uh, what Ford is doing in the right way to target that audience. Because, you know, if, if you talk Mustang or if you say F-150 in the U.S., there's a legacy. There's yeah. a history. And you're probably influenced by how your parents bought cars, you know, mm-hmm. what, what cars your parents drove. My, my d- dad used to drive a Lincoln Continental, and he loved that car. He used to talk about, like, oh, rich Corinthian leather. Like, you know, I, I made it now. I've got this Lincoln. Uh, I've got this, this Continental. Um, and there, there just isn't that word of mouth in families or yeah. within the population that drives that forward. So you have to find, you have to find new ways to engage the consumer. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of interesting. So now that you're working with Lincoln, which is more yep. of a high end um, company out of Ford, do you find it more difficult to sell to these consumers because, again, they are first time car buyers? So do you think that? their uh, perception going in is I should just get a car, it doesn't matter the price, or do you think that they're actually going for these more high-end cars like Lincoln? Um, that's a difficult question, actually. Uh, there's there's probably two parts to it. One is, so this is specific to Lincoln and to some extent Ford, is uh-huh. we came into China a bit later than other brands. Yeah. So in our case, there's um, a lot of German brands like Benz or, you know, Audi, uh, etc. They're doing really well. Mm-hmm. And so they already had this really strong market share. So we're, we're the attacker challenger brand. We're coming in to try to take share that they have and to yeah. some extent like what other, some other brands have as well, right? Um, two, uh, you get all sorts of stories here. Um, so we have, we'll have an auto show. And during the auto show, we'll put out some of our new either uh, prototype products or like, I mean, I don't know if you saw the new Navigator stuff that's been released recently. Maybe you haven't. But we have these new prototypes and they're concept cars and they're really cool. Uh-huh. And you will get um, wealthy Chinese consumers that will walk into the auto show and say, I want that car. And you will say, well, that's, it's a concept car. It's not yeah. for sale, right? Yeah. And they will say, I will give you, you know, a million RMB on the spot or like two million RMB. What does it take? I'll get a briefcase of money and come back to you. Uh-huh. And so you get this like and it, 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 it's this this weird thing that you just wouldn't necessarily have in the U.S. I mean, maybe that happens in the U.S. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yes, in terms of marketing towards those different um, to different Chinese segments, it. It's, it's, it ends up being a very and especially for Lincoln. Sorry, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but it, it, no, it's yeah. a really difficult uh it's, it's a challenge because yeah. we have to figure – so one is we have to figure out first how many of our consumers are own a luxury brand already uh-huh. and are interested in going to our brand. Yeah. Or how many consumers already are, are you know, maybe they own a, a high-end vehicle that's not considered a luxury brand. Maybe it's uh-huh. a, you know, an SUV for Ford or something. How If they're going to upgrade, how do we get them interested in Lincoln? Mm-hmm. And then for Lincoln, you know, we have – we already have a 100-year history in the world. Uh 
maybe in the U.S. it's it's more strong, but in China to some extent, Lincoln Lincoln is still viewed as a very like, you know, it 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 has like tradition, it has like you know heritage and culture, and uh, so how do you make that to be like this cool modern brand yeah. for Chinese consumers that haven't haven't uh, maybe either owned a car before or haven't considered an American luxury brand? Mm-hmm. So there, there's lots of challenges like that. So trying to make Lincoln stick out instead of trying to make it more of a um, brand that everyone knows. It's difficult here because of the more collectivist culture, do you think? Uh, because of the collectivist culture, I'm not. I That's a tough one for me. I, mm-hmm. I actually don't know if I know the answer yeah. to that. So I, uh, so, so, I mean, if, if you consider transportation in general, right, mm-hmm. going back to, yeah. I think, how you started this, um, China is very weird. Yeah, uh, it's like I said. Maybe we didn't have really this car culture until, uh, on, uh, you know, until the eighties, uh, and then now you have this, this country that is investing billions of dollars every year in building uh, a countrywide transportation network. Uh-huh. I mean, I could take a train from Shanghai to Beijing in four and a half hours, a high speed rail. Yeah, uh, they leave every fifteen minutes or every half an hour, so it's like super convenient. I will soon be able to take a high speed train to Hong Kong, um, and I think they're actually going to start developing the high speed rail to Thailand. Uh-huh. So like the, you have lots of public transportation options, and then you have to think about the hub and spokes thing. So do I need, and and do I need a car in Shanghai when I have twenty three metro lines? I have a bus system, so it ends up being about an identity as opposed yeah. to about what you need for personal transport. Yeah. So then you have to sell into that identity. So if they're, are they looking for a traditional brand like Lincoln that has lots of good products and lots of things to offer? Are they looking to be like their friends that are all driving like black Benzes and black Audis? Uh-huh. So you have to consider all those things. Yeah. So I know in the U.S. it's hard to do um, maybe non-digital research. Things like m- mail-in surveys don't really work there. But it, have you found that things that aren't really digital-based work here well, or have you not really researched uh, that aspect? I haven't really done none. Um, so we have a we have a strategy department that usually uh-huh. handles a lot of the, like, focus group, that sorts of things. But, I, I mean, I, I think they've had a lot of success with them, where they'll go meet with a group of consumers. They'll, you know, they'll discuss with them. They'll ask them questions. They'll show them pictures of cars, and they'll try to get feedback about what the consumers actually think about those products and brands. And then more, more so, like, what are consumers actually looking for when they're Mm-hmm. In when they're considering purchasing a, a luxury car, right? But I've been really sorry. Yeah. I personally no, haven't done yeah. much of that. Um, so comparing the professional culture here to the professional culture back in the U.S., back in Michigan, what are some key things that you've really noticed? That's a good question. Um, so, so there's two parts to it. One is I, I used to work actually in a local company uh-huh. uh so prior to so gtv is an international company we have a headquarters in detroit right uh so we're probably a little more process oriented but yeah. we're still embedded in china so yeah. uh, i would say like this is just a, a general statement it doesn't apply to every situation yeah. but uh it's a lot less process oriented oriented in in china it's a lot more just like could you do what you got to do to get it done yeah. as opposed yeah. to did you check all the boxes and did you do like did you follow the correct, you know, process? Because there's uh-huh. always things popping up that you would never consider. For example, you want to, um, you want to uh, get a TV commercial on the air. Uh, in China, you have to actually go through a censorship process. Okay. So, like, even if you want to do a car commercial, there has to be a review of it, uh, and it has to get approval. 
So let's say, so you have to factor that into your timeline. Uh-huh. And now let's say one day prior to that review happening, you figure out you want to actually change, you want to edit some of the words in the commercial. So that, that commercial is sitting in that reviewer's hand in Beijing. You're here in Shanghai. You have a new copy. What do you do? You put someone on the midnight train. You, 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 know, you, you send them over uh-huh. there with, like a, with the thing on a hard drive, and you switch it out, and, and you, know, you go to them and say, oh, we have a new copy in the morning. So there's just like there's lots of situations that pop up like that where you just have to you just do what you got to do or improvise in the situation. Yeah. So the local company that you worked with here, was that the first time you were working in China? Um, the first, uh, no. So I've had three um, jobs in China. One uh-huh. was for an enterprise software company. Uh, number two was for a, the, a local company that had partnered with Salesforce, an American company, uh-huh. to do uh, Salesforce China, uh, Salesforce software. Well, I mean, software is a strong, this, you know, the Salesforce platform in, in China. And then number three is GTB. And my first job then doing software development was with a, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how familiar your audience is with CRM. Um, but his name was Tom Siebel. He was sort of the, the original guy that did CRM. He, he did this, uh, he, he formed this company called Siebel Systems, sold it for $5 billion to Oracle, uh-huh. and then he, then he started a new company called C3, doing like energy analytics and platforms, and that's where I started. Okay. That was an interesting experience because it was a startup in China. So the I'm, wow. like I know about the hours in Silicon Valley, but like the yeah. hours were insane. Right? Yeah. You just had people sleeping under the desk and stuff like that. So did you think that was mainly the most difficult part about going to a different country and starting a job is just because it was a startup company and it was a lot of hours the the most the most stressful part of starting a new job in china is uh actually waiting to see if you get your work visa or not <laughs> oh, okay. because imagine you have a job offer you want to accept and yeah. then you you enter this process where you know if you don't they're very fair in China. It, it's it's very fair. They're you know they have rules about it, but you you don't you get nervous because then you you can think of all the ways in which your application maybe you messed up something, maybe you didn't get uh-huh. the, the exact form they wanted. Yeah, that sort of thing. So that was probably the most stressful part of it. Um, the second part was, you know, everything just ends up having this extra layer of difficulty. So yeah. I I was lucky. I was fortunate enough. I studied some Chinese before I came here, so. The, the language thing wasn't such a big issue, but you have to consider, like, in a company, you're maybe the only native English speaker. Uh-huh. In, uh, in my first company, there was two, and in my second company, there was one, me, alone. Wow. So you become de facto, like, meet every president of yeah. every other foreign yeah. uh, enterprise because you happen to speak English as a native language. Uh-huh. So you, you get put in a lot of situations that they would never put, like, a 24- or 25-year-old <laughs> yeah. person in. <laughs> so that, that's, uh, that was the challenging part, but also an exciting part. Uh-huh. Well, thank you so much, Sean, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Was there anything that you'd like to leave us with? No, no. I, uh, t- I was going to only say if, if any of your uh, audience is considering um, working abroad, maybe not only China, but, you know, anywhere. Uh, the the int- one thing I found that ends up – so uh, I studied language first, and I thought, oh, if I can speak a bit of Chinese – you know what, I will be able to find a great job because I will have English and Chinese language skills in the market. Yeah. Um, realizing later that it's much more important to have some sort of some sort of separate work skill that is unrelated to language uh-huh. and let the language support that. So if, if you can speak, if you study Chinese or Japanese or Korean, I can promise you if you go to their local market, they who, you know, who have probably studied English since they were like five or six will mm-hmm. probably speak better English than you speak their language. So you will almost never be able to compete on language alone. You should yeah. really have some sort of skill 
besides that that the language supports so i i would just say don't make because i i was it was a bit of a mistake on my part because i thought study the language and find a job yeah realizing only later it was probably much more important to market myself as someone who had a particular set of skills who could also maybe do a bit on the language side yeah that was that's the last thing well thank you so much cool thanks it was fun yeah you too thanks for listening Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and make sure to tune in next time for GVSU's PR Hangover with Hunter Buren. Bye!